Right. Hello. Uh, this episode of Stage Bladder is being recorded on the 19th of March 2020. At this time, Great Britain is effectively being closed down slightly later than most of the countries in Europe uh, in the face of the global pandemic caused by the COVID-19 virus. The British government have closed the schools. They have advised people not to go out uh, to practice what they call extreme social distancing. They've advised people not to go to theatres, to bars, uh, to public spaces, which has left a lot of businesses floundering and a lot of people unemployed. There is talk of mobilising the military in uh, a lockdown in London, which may or may not occur over the next couple of days in order to try to halt the spread of the virus. These measures are being implemented, although I should say probably slightly more effectively, elsewhere in the world, with the United States closing its borders. Most European countries have closed their borders. Um, this is a, a state of emergency on a global scale, an unprecedented global scale. And I have been wondering about recording some episodes in response to this state of emergency, because as those of you who listen to this podcast regularly or know me socially will know, I have recently published a book looking at states of emergency. So before I start, anybody that hasn't listened to this before or doesn't know me, I should say that I am not an epidemiologist. I'm not a social scientist. I'm not a human geographer. I'm not somebody that studies the ways in which aid is administered during states of emergency or the ways in which legislation is brought into play during states of emergency. I am a drama lecturer. My interest in states of emergency was and remains in the way that states of emergency are presented to domestic populaces. I began looking at emergencies uh, because it struck me that I was initially uh, researching terrorism, uh, terrorist acts, and it struck me that um, people involved in acts of terrorism use theatrical conventions to amplify their messages. They used um, things like costume props. They uh, used scripts as a way of creating texts which can then be distributed around the world in order to terrify people. The clue is in the name, right? Terrorism re relies upon, upon terror. Um, and it also struck me that um, domestic governments and media organisations used these texts to further their own interests. In the state, in the case of media organisations, generally it was to increase revenue. In the case of political institutions, it was to bring in new laws, pieces of legislation which would increase their power. And so my take on states of emergency was critical. It was, um, I believed then, and I still believe, that the co-opting of given events in order to increase your revenue or increase your authority by scaring people is an immoral act. Um, the two the two states of emergency, the two, the two kind of uh, topics that I looked at in the course of the book were uh, terrorism and the refugee crisis. And when I began researching, uh, the Islamic State, the so-called Islamic State, was kind of at its heyday. It had uh, seized control of large parts of Syria and Iraq and had declared a caliphate and was recruiting people hand over fist and was also producing very well-made uh, films which were designed to terrify its adversaries. And these films were being broadcast into domestic spaces around the world. And in fact, I started thinking about this because I was sitting uh, on the settee at home with my then six-month-old son watching the news and suddenly a clip from an Islamic State um, execution video was broadcast just on the, the mainstream news. And so as I looked into states of emergency, I began to get more and more angry at the ways in which we as spectators, and I was interested predominantly um, in spectators, were being targeted by political institutions and media organisations whose interest was in making us scared. So that is my approach to states of emergency, and that is the angle that I took in the book. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic is a very different animal. It does have some qualities in 
common with the states of emergency that I was looking at, particularly um, the destabilization that we experience as information is delivered to us, and it is delivered to us at the click of a button, and many of us, myself um, included, are constantly accessing our smartphones, our laptops, you know, whatever, that we can get the new piece of information about um, COVID-19, about government responses, about um, medical uh, research, whatever the hell it is that can make us try to understand the situation that we're living through more. And of course, part of the consequence of this is a lot of misinformation is generated and a lot of very silly things are being said and a lot of people are getting scared. So in that respect, the state of emergency that we're, look, we're, we're living through at the moment does look quite familiar to me. But in many key respects, it does not look familiar to me. And I think that the main reason why this is, is because this is not a state of emergency that is being presented to audiences. This is a state of emergency that we are living through. The threat to us is real. The threat to domestic populaces around the world is real, tangible and you know, right now we're seeing um, there's towns in Italy uh, that are declaring that an entire generation has been wiped out by this virus. This is something that is spreading um, faster than and well, most governments, particularly my own government, have been able to predict or to contain. It's something that affects everyday people in their everyday lives, and it's not something that can be neatly packaged and presented to us as something that affect, that something that happens elsewhere but that could affect us, which is what was the case with terrorism, and was also, I should say, the case with the refugee crisis. The refugee crisis was a really kind of weird, um, or is a really, I shouldn't say it's, it's past tense, because of course it isn't past tense, over 1% of the, the world's population are still refugees, and that is increasing. But the refugee crisis, as it was presented to us, and by us I mean um, comfortable Western European, North American spectators, was that it was somehow our crisis, that, that we were about to be flooded with um, an in, uh, kind of an enormous amount of people who were going to come and take jobs and resources and access to services and so on, and that we didn't have space for them. And right now, I'm willing to bet that sounds pretty silly to most people um, around the world as they kind of as the phrase keeps being used, hunker down, which I think is a phrase from American, American sports, um, in the face of this pandemic. Um, and and so it's been, it's been quite strange thinking about how I would approach this, um, or even if I should approach this, because, you know, I'm just one person uh, with a podcast, and um, I kind of was a bit, a bit reticent. Well, part of the reason that I am recording this episode is that I, I've had a couple of messages from a friend who's... Um, kind of prodded me into doing this. So I don't know whether this will be useful, I don't know whether it will be informative, I don't know if it will do any good whatsoever. Um, but whilst I have the time and whilst um, I think that there might be some of the things that I, I was looking at in my research that might actually relate to the current state that we're living through, here goes. Welcome to Stage Blather, a podcast um, exploring theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo and you are listening to episode 30. A brief history of emergencies. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat. Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far with a tuneless piano and a painted guitar. So I said that um the COVID-19 pandemic doesn't follow 
the same kind of rules as the states of emergency that I was looking at. And one of the things that I've been quite uh, amused by is watching politicians slowly realise this. Because previously, when um, something has happened that has terrified people, and take terrorism as an example, politicians have been able to use inflamed rhetoric to kind of whip us up into a fury and then inevitably bring in legislation that will increase their authority while making it look like they're working to our benefit, but almost always not. The um, And I know that's a, a kind of a very harsh statement, and other opinions are available, but... Things like the Snoopers Charter, um, or the Investigative Powers Act, to give it its proper title, which was in 2016, which was brought in. I mean, Theresa May, our former Prime Minister at that point, uh, Home Secretary, had been trying to bring in the Snoopers Charter for quite a long time, um, but had faced resistance because the Snoopers Charter, which offered uh, government and um, official institutions unprecedented powers to pry in our personal affairs and correspondence, was in many ways illegal. But... As the Islamic State videos were released, and as um, increasing numbers of people went over to join um, or to fight for causes uh, related to Islamic State, we became more and more and more terrified. And so the Snoopers Charter was offered as a conciliatory measure, or so it seemed, to make us feel more secure. And it worked. We allowed it to come into, to, um, into law, and now our governments have increased uh, powers of surveillance over us. And this has generally been the case with states of emergency, and it's, it's also the case with the refugee crisis, and think about the ways in which um, increased, uh, I think the word is controls, um, although I can think of many other words for it, were brought in on um, immigration into the UK, and who would be allowed to, uh, to, to move here, and also who would be allowed to stay here, and of course this only increased after the, uh, the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union in what has become uh, conversationally known as Brexit. So politicians and uh, media institutions are acclimatised to scary things happening, which they can then present to us in a way that increases their authority and makes it seem like they're working in our for our benefit, but aren't. And Boris Johnson, the current British Prime Minister, has tried to use that playbook, I think, in his response to the COVID-19 pandemic, where he brings out occasional <laughs> statements, where he sort of talks to everybody and says, right, we're going to do this. Um, one of the most uh, hilarious ones was, the, right, we're, gonna, uh, we're not going to do much to contain this, we're going to rely on herd immunity, as if we were all some kind of flock of cattle. Um, the thing is, this state of emergency does pose an existential threat and is being felt by people on the ground. And so the usual um, conciliatory measures brought in by governments that uh, actually just increase their authority don't cut it anymore. People are not buying it. And so the, the politicians having to frantically come back and actually roll back on their initial suggestions and then bring in measures that might actually help people. And some of the, the really exciting stuff that's happening right now is that um, socialist policies, which you know previously would have seemed absolutely ludicrous in mainstream politics, such as things like a universal basic income, um, or potentially, hopefully, fingers crossed, um, rent freeze for the time uh, for as long as the state of emergency lasts, are actually being considered, and in many countries around the world, are actually being brought in. Donald Trump, hardly a left-wing politician, the President of the United States, is considering cash flow incentives to people who are vulnerable and are affected by this state of emergency. This is... Remarkable, and actually is giving me huge causes for hope. 
I wanted to kind of say this at the beginning of this episode because what I'm going to do now is talk a little bit about states of emergency and where they come from and what states of emergency actually are because they're quite a, a recent phenomenon. And the history that I'm going to offer is not a positive one. It is not a happy history. The, the states of emergency do not come to us from a good place. And for the most part, they have not been used in ways that I would consider to be beneficial or positive. But while I'm offering this history, I want to say that, that the rule books are being rewritten right now and that... Um, had I factored, you know, had I been writing the book that I've just written um, now, had I left a, a year or so, I would be writing a very different kind of book. And I think that it is important to remember that at the moment, when there is a lot of panic around, when there is a lot of uncertainty, when we are all feeling necessarily terrified by the fact that the world doesn't look the same as it did, you know, uh, a few months ago, or a week ago, or even a day ago. You know, <laughs> at the moment, uh, every time somebody in power opens their mouth, you're kind of thinking, oh God, right, what we, what's going to happen next? My sister, who's a primary school teacher, re referred to sitting with her class waiting for the um, the public bulletins and feeling like she was sitting around a wireless in World War II. And you know, there has been a lot of rhetoric about World War II used in public. Um, I'll probably get to that at later episodes. But for now, what I want to do is talk about the history of states of emergency and where they come from. So the word emergency is something that in its current form, can be dated uh, back to, uh, I've traced it to 1625, it may go back further, but the earliest usage I found for it is uh, in John Donne, the poet and preacher, um, who in 1625 proclaimed, As manner tasted to every man that he liked best, so do the Psalms minister instruction and satisfaction to every man in every emergency and occasion. Prior to Don saying this, as far as I can make out, the word emergency means something that materialises, something that shows up, something that emerges. But what he does here... He says, is he's, he's talking about a line from Psalm 63, which says, Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. So Don talks about the word of God ministering to every man in every emergency and occasion. The word of God ministers to every man in every emergency and occasion. The emergency here is a crisis as far as Don sees it, because the, um, the the line from the Psalms that he's talking about is a line that was written by, or supposedly written by, King David when he was being persecuted in the wilderness of Judah. So David, King David, um, is alone and facing overwhelming odds and says, because thou hast been my help, referring to God, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. What he's doing is he's looking at his current crisis and saying, okay, in the past I have had God's love. And therefore, in the future, I will rejoice in the shadow of his wings. So, although my present is shit, there has been a past which was good, and there will be a future which was good. And the way in which I can rationalise this is because I can appeal to something that is outside of myself, something that is bigger than myself, God, essentially. So, in order for um, David to uh, overcome his contemporary crisis he thinks about something bigger than himself that exists in the past and the future. So the emergency that Don refers to is something that relates to a contemporary crisis, but it kind of historicizes that crisis by saying, okay, this is shit, but there was a good in the past and there will be a good in the future. And the way that I'm going to get myself through this is by appealing to the force which made that thing good, right? So essentially... The emergency comes into being as a way of facing crisis by appealing to a personal spirituality. So, that's quite different to the way that the emergency works for us today, in one key respect. 
because the emergency as it works today is something that assumes an historical trajectory. If you call something an emergency, it means there was, up until whenever, recently, you assume, a state of being that was positive, or that was good, or that was acceptable, or was agreeable, or whatever. Um, something is happening now which threatens that. Something is happening which is causing a problem. In order to get back to that state that was good and agreeable in the future, we need to do something about it. So, by declaring something an emergency, you're saying, we need to fix this. And the way in which we fix this, generally speaking these days, is, is through something called emergency protocol. Emergency protocol is where you suspend all normal rules that, uh, in which society applies, all normal rules that relate to this particular state of emergency. Um, and you do so under the understanding that you will use that suspension to remedy the emergency so that we can return to everyday life. Now the reason why I am, or became kind of sceptical of this, um, is because it seems to me that we are constantly living through states that are being suspended. It seems to me that we are always kind of on in this uh, strange hinterland where there is an emergency happening, so therefore we can't give everybody habeas corpus. We can't um, allow everybody the right not to be tortured. We can't um, maintain a, a sensible immigration policy that would allow people who are being who are fleeing from persecution to make homes in our country. We must, uh, because it's an exceptional uh, time, we must suspend these rules. Anyway, so that's my scepticism about emergencies. So that, that's where this comes from. So. I want to return to the... I, re, I said that the, the John Don's definition of emergency was different to our own, and the reason it's different is because for Don, the way in which you overcome an emergency is by appealing to personal spirituality. Your belief in God will get you through the current crisis because it's something that exists outside of yourself, and so in some ways you, the, the emergency can't touch it. It's something that doesn't isn't actually at risk because of whatever's happening to you. Um, this is where people talk about their faith getting them through, through, through hard times. Contemporary states of emergency don't rely upon personal spirituality. What they rely upon, rather, is faith in a, a body, um, usually a national body, to remedy the state of emergency. So we are facing a threat from terror, we are facing a threat from whatever. Um, rather than my faith in God is going to get me through this, it is my faith in my government, or my government's ability to remedy the situation is going to get me through this. Which, as I'm saying this, sounds ludicrous because I'm willing to bet that anybody listening to this probably has had their faith in their domestic governments somewhat challenged over the previous years. Nevertheless, faith in a broader um, body is something that is very common in uh, what's called political theology. Political theology is a kind of the discipline looking at the ways in which politics works. Uh, Simon Critchley, um, the, the political, the, the sceptical philosopher, talks about this um, phenomenon in a way that I quite like. He says, all government requires make-believe, whether the belief is in the divine right of kings, the quasi-divinity of the people that is somehow meant to find expression through the magic of representative government, the organ of the party, the radiant sun-like will of the glorious leader, or whatever. So in other words, any method of political organisation um, cannot endure without something, a dimension that exists purely as belief. Belief is therefore fundamental to any political organization and by inference therefore to emergencies. States of emergency rely upon a form of belief and in, in this case the belief that the governing body will be able to remedy it. As an aside, 
I think that this is something else that I've found quite fascinating and really heartening about the COVID-19 pandemic. We may, and I'm speaking on behalf, I suppose, of people I know who feel like me that um, have no faith in the people elected to positions of power within this country to be able to A, work in work to the benefit of people in this country, or B, bring um, their work into being. So it may be, so yeah, we, we may not believe in our governments, but we are starting, I think, to believe in each other. There are any number of grassroots projects that are being um, implemented, whether that's people who are trying to organize volunteers to come work for the NHS, whether it's people who are setting up, as I know somebody who is, a Facebook group to help dog owners in Edinburgh to um, <laughs> how how best to look after their animals during this time period, whether it's people organizing what are called uh, staircase groups in um, tenement buildings to make sure that they check in on those who live in the same building so that if there's anybody, anybody vulnerable, they're being offered help. You know, all of this kind of thing. Um, I think that, that faith in people is something that is seeing, or at least for me in my bubble, is, is, is on the increase, which is a very good thing. Um, but to return to the, the original thing, so I've said that John Donne defines emergency in uh, the 17th century as some, a belief, um, personal spirituality, a belief in God that will help you to overcome the crisis that you face. Uh, and in our time period, rather than a belief in personal spirituality, it's become something else. It's become a kind of belief in the state to help overcome whatever the crisis is. Um, now, the shift from one to the other obviously happens over a long period of time. Probably, I think, the most visible proponent of this shift is a guy called Carl Schmitt, who is a 20th century figure. He was a political philosopher uh, who, in a book uh, called Political Theology in 1922, he... Um, talked about emergencies, and he linked the emergency to the figure of the sovereign. Now, the sovereign is a head of state. It is a representative figure, and it is charged with um, identifying and responding to states of emergency as they occur. So if a crisis happens in a given state, then it is the sovereign who ultimately is charged with remedying that, or bringing into being the things that will help to remedy it. Um, Schmidt says, uh, to the conception of God in the 17th and 18th centuries belongs the idea of his transcendence vis-a-vis -vis the world, vis-a-vis -vis the world, rather, just as to that period's philosophy, uh, just as that period's philosophy of the state belongs the notion of the transcendence of the sovereign vis-a-vis -vis the state. So, um, what Schmidt is saying, and I know this is a very complicated uh, passage, and I didn't read it particularly well. I, as I understand it, Schmidt was saying that in the 17th century, um, God transcends the um, matters of the world and therefore is the thing to which we appeal when we are facing a crisis. In the 20th century, the sovereign is the figure who transcends the matters of the world and to whom we appeal in a crisis. So, and I, have to, I must uh, ask your forgiveness, I'm going to quote myself here because this is fairly complicated and if I try and extemporize it I might get it wrong. The power of the sovereign, who is the, the figure who stands apart, finds its ultimate expression in a principle of suspension where the law is made law because it can be suspended by the sovereign, which is a really, really confusing thing, right? The sovereign is somebody who looks after the country and who ultimately is respons responsible for the law. The way that they prove their power is by suspending that law under the, uh, uh, the situation of an emergency. Um, 
if that sounds like a hall of mirrors designed by Escher, it's because it is a hall of mirrors designed by Escher. And one of the most kind of ghoulish examples I know of this hall of mirrors is in uh, the establishing of black site prisons in occupied Afghanistan and Iraq by the US government after the uh, invasions in 2003, where in order to protect democracy, that was the, the rule that was given, George W. Bush's administration, President George W. Bush's administration, um, declared that certain people no longer had the right not to be tortured. It doesn't make any sense that to protect human rights you will suspend human rights, and yet that is what they did. They created what were called a, a, a enemy non-combatants, it was a class of people um, who they argued had given up their human rights because they had got involved in war um, without being soldiers. They didn't belong to any army that was officially recognized, and so therefore they were not soldiers and they were not protected by the Geneva Convention. However, because they were involved in a war, they were not criminals and were therefore not protected by whatever you know human rights uh, criminals are protected by. So therefore they, they kind of existed in this hinterland. And so they suspended the rights of those people and tortured them. This was the way in which the uh, administration of George W. Bush, President Bush, um, legitimized itself and what I imagine they will always be known for. Anyway, so states of emergency, when we talk about states of emergency, we are always talking about um, a sovereign figure. And the sovereign figure doesn't have to be one person, although increasingly uh, it is, um, because the sovereign is the person who is able to suspend um, normative rules in order to remedy the situation. The, the funniest example of this I know from recent years is uh, President Trump trying to declare a state of emergency to build a wall between the United States and Mexico. When asked why he was declaring a state of emergency, which should, you would think, be like the last possible result after all other uh, avenues have been tried, he said, well, I don't need to declare a state of emergency, I'm just doing it to try and speed up the process. Um, anyway, so I think it's probably worth pointing out that Schmidt was a Nazi, and Schmidt had uh, his political philosophy about uh, suspending um, uh, everyday laws in order to remedy a given situation. Um, Schmidt's book, Political Theology, was very important in the government of Adolf Hitler, who, when he uh, claimed power, or when he was elected to uh, power, uh, declared a state of emergency which lasted for the entirety of his reign. One of the ways in which the Nazis were able to do what they did was because they were working under a state of emergency. Like I said, the history of states of emergency is not a happy one. It is not a positive thing. Um, it's something that I think has come to us through a variety of fairly um, dreadful channels, and this is one of them. So, um, the state of emergency, or the state of exception was what Schmidt called it, um, was hugely influential. Because, quite frankly, it grants unprecedented powers to political institutions, and that is very attractive to people who happen to hold positions of power. It is also very difficult to hold people accountable when they declare states of emergency, because states of emergency deprioritize anything that is not directly related to remedying the state of emergency. If you're in an emergency, there is no time to think, there is no time to chat, there is no time to discuss, there is no time to criticize. You will notice, in fact, if you look on um, websites at the moment, uh, sorry, news gathering websites at the moment, that there are any number of op-ed pieces criticising those who are trying to hold the government to account. Now is not the time to play partisan politics, is a, a very kind of common um, cry. Um, that's, that's what happens in emergencies. Now is not the time. There is no time in emergencies. There's never any time. Um, it's always the present. It's always the frantic present that is 
that overrides everything else. That's dangerous. In those situations, people can do awful things. So please, um, please don't be taken in by the, the the rhetoric that says that we should not be playing politics at this juncture and that we should not be trying to hold the government to account. This is exactly the time that we should be holding the government to account. Um, I should also say that the um, the state of exception became uh, something, it's not actually associated with, with Carl Schmitt anymore so much, it's associated with a guy called Giorgio Agamben, who has written two books um, on this subject, uh, where he talks about, and I'm going to quote from Agamben, but this is quite a dense quote, he says, uh, he talks about um, the way in which laws are suspended under the state of exception, he says, that they are a kind of paradox, because on the one hand, um, states of exception invalidate the laws upon which the state otherwise builds its authority, um, but on the other hand, states of exception de-exceptionalize the exception. If you call multiple states of exception, as has, has happened in fact um, since uh, the early 20th century, then it stops being an exception. It is actually more the, the, the norm. Um, and Agamben says that the law I quote, is made of nothing but what it manages to capture inside itself through the inclusive exclusion of the exceptio. It nourishes itself on this and is a dead letter without it. Uh, Agamben calls this process um, law with a strike through, which is a law that claims legitimacy through its ability to erase itself. That is what a state of exception is. It is a law that claims um, legitimacy through its ability to erase itself. So one of the... One of the, 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 the difficulties um, has been in recent years trying to uncouple um, emergencies from the state of exception. This is generally something that um, only happens at a philosophical level as far as I can make out. Although, as I said, the current emergency that is, well, the emergency is multiple emergencies. I don't know what the, the, the term is for a global uh, set of emergencies under one banner, but I'm sure there will be one and it will be used within public before too long. Um, one of the one of the things about the COVID nineteen pandemic is that I think it's rewriting the rule book about the ways in which states of emergency will be addressed, and in potentially very good ways, because rather than a governing body declaring absolutely something that is then implemented and which works to the advantage of the governing body rather than the populace, as we've seen, rather um, governing bodies have been trying to implement things that they feel um, will, well, that they say will benefit the populace, but, rather, but will actually only benefit them. And populaces are responding in ways which are forcing um, governments to act in the, the favour of the populace. So it's possible that the whole... Um, rhetoric around emergency and the notion of emergency will change for us in recent years and I can only hope that that's the case because as I said I'm, I'm very skeptical of the ways in which states of emergency have been used thus far. Um, one of the ways that, that people have sort of were talking about trying to um, uncouple the state of exception which is the Carl Schmitt and Agamben's um, identification of the sovereign enacting their will upon the populace from emergencies was to say that there should be restraints placed upon um, the sovereign under states of emergency. This is something that it's it's a lovely idea. Um, Nomi Claire Lazar, for example, political political philosopher, said that there should be moral and ethical restraints placed upon the sovereign. But you know, I, I whilst I think that this is a lovely idea, um, there have been plenty of instances of sovereign figures um, not observing ethical or moral restraints when declaring states of exception. I, I have uh, already identified one of the key ones in the, the 
provision for torture under the administration of George W. Bush. And in fact, that provision was supported by a popular American philosopher at the time, um, Sam Harris, who's uh, still a leading figure in um, the field. Um, Sam Harris was the guy who popularized the ticking time bomb thought experiment, um, which was if you knew, if you had a terror suspect in custody and you knew that they had planted a ticking time bomb somewhere and you needed to torture them in order to get information out of them, would you do it? Um, which is a, a utilitarian argument, ultimately. So should the death, should the, the suffering of one outweigh the death of countless others? Um, it's an absolutely vile thought experiment, and it also doesn't take into consideration things like, well, what would happen if you offered to get that person's family to safety and uh, then ask them for the information? Do you think that they would be more likely to give you the information? Um, and also you would then have made a friend rather than pissing off the entire international community. Um, for one and another, there. Uh, well, actually, I'm not going to go into arguments for uh, against torture. I'm sure that everyone listening to this already knows many of them, but that was one. Um, Harris uh, went on record in uh, 2013. He was criticised for the ticking time bomb thought experiment and the way in which it had been used to justify the the torture provision uh, under the emergency legislation, and he said. Although I think that torture should remain illegal, it is not clear that having a torture provision in our laws would create as slippery a slope as many people imagine. We have a capital punishment provision, but it has not led to our killing prisoners at random because we can't control ourselves. While I'm strongly opposed to capital punishment, I can readily concede that our executing about five people every month hasn't led to total moral chaos. Perhaps a rule regarding torture could be applied with equal, equal restraint. Uh, I quote this because he's using the state of exception in a really weird way. So he says... Um, I don't believe in capital punishment, but it, we've got capital punishment and it hasn't led to uh, total moral chaos. I, he's, I also don't believe in torture, but if we had a torture provision in our law, maybe it wouldn't lead to total moral chaos. So the law, which by virtue of its proper name should be immutable, is um, predicated upon its suspension in exceptional circumstances. We shouldn't torture people, but in the event of an exceptional circumstance, like a ticking time bomb thought experiment, we should torture people. It's toxic um, because it shores up the belief that in an emergency anything is permitted and I should also say that the current pandemic um, is granting or is being used to grant exceptional powers to people uh, to figures of authority um, Donald Trump President Trump for example has uh, as I understand it uh, passed a law is trying to pass some kind of law which enables him to turn um, domestic provision towards things that are going to be of benefit and the crisis. Now, it may be that that's a very useful thing, but what is worrying is that that will then, that power that will then remain in place, I suspect, because that's what these things are a habit of doing, um, and could then be wielded for different reasons in the future. Um, so, anyway, um, oh, where am I? kind of confused. Yes, right. I'm back. Sorry. I said this was going to be a weird episode, and um, uh, I am aware that if I put a foot wrong here, then there could be bad consequences for that, because I'm potentially speaking to some quite frightened people. Um, again, I should, uh, I'll issue the caveat that I'm not an epidemiologist, nor am I a political scientist, and that the research that I've done surrounding emergencies is to do with the ways in which they are presented to domestic populaces, which is also then conversely the reason why I am recording this episode. Um, I want to finish up by talking about British states of emergencies because um, states of emergency are 
different nation to nation, and that sounds like a, a you know a truism, but it's worth saying. The French state of emergency, for example, that was brought in after the Paris attacks, what became known as the Paris attacks, was extended multiple times and relied very heavily upon a crystallised notion of France and French national identity. It was something that was extremely nationalistic and jingoistic, as states of emergencies often are. Um, states of emergency in Britain are things that we have used coming back to haunt us. Now, uh, Stephen Morton uh, wrote a book to, uh, talking, about, uh, talking about colonialism, the, the colonial project, in which he says, Contemporary states of emergency owe much to colonial forms of sovereignty, not only because many colonial states permitted practices such as detention without trial, torture, execution, and other forms of violent state repression, but also because the practice of colonial governmentality complicated the distinction between norm and exception that underpins the rhetoric of emergency. And I'll try and unpick that. So he says that, on the one hand, as you would expect, when nations colonized other nations, the colonizing nation would practice things that it would not practice on its own citizens, such as torture, detention without trial, execution. Um, but also, he says, he points out that when colonizing nations go and colonize other nations, the idea of what is normal and what is an exception becomes extremely blurry. And I'm going to give a couple of examples as to why that is. So, um, Nasser Hussein after the, uh, points out that after the 17th century, um, the rule... Uh, oh, hang on, no. <laughs> God, I'm trying to balance too many things in my head at the same time. Okay, Britain went and colonised large parts of the world, as we know, although we don't tend to teach it much in our schools anymore. Um, one of the ways in which we defend this colonial project is by saying that we were liberating and educating people, that they had previously lived under a kind of uncivilized barbarism. This is a common argument, and hopefully if ever you hear it, you will dismantle it and never talk to the person making it again. Um, what we brought was this uh, rule-bound bureaucratic form of government, which was the form of government that we enjoyed in Britain, that made us British, that made us grand, and so therefore we would take it to other peoples and we would bring it to them and they would in turn become grand and so on. Which is all very well. I mean, it isn't all very well, it's absolute gibberish. But it doesn't work because if that was the case, we would have to then grant the people that we were colonising the same rights that we granted our own citizens, rights that were granted under the very bureaucratic government that we were bringing with us. We couldn't do that. And the reason we couldn't do that was simple. We were colonising them. We were going to their countries and we were suspending their ways of living. Usually, oh, no, I'm going to say always violently, but maybe there was one instance in which it wasn't, but I'm pretty certain it was always violently. And so therefore we could not offer them the same rules, the same laws, the same uh, rights that our citizens enjoyed, which presented us with a problem, right? We're coming over here and we're bringing our laws and we will make you free and we will make you wonderful with our laws, except that in order to do that we have to come over here and we have to not give you the rights that our citizens enjoy. And what's the solution? Declare a state of emergency. Um, this is what we did. In uh, India and Pakistan, for example, states of emergency, uh, according to Nasser Hussein, uh, were commonplace, and um, there's a kind of, you know, 
grimly uh, ironic that since uh, the partition of India and Pakistan, um, states of emergency have been commonplace in the governments that have ruled over India and Pakistan because they learned from us. Um, Stephen Jacobson also points out that, um, that this doctrine, that the state of emergency, boomeranged back to the British Isles in the form of the Northern Ireland Emergency Provisions Act, which allowed uh, terror suspects to be tried by, um, by a judge without a jury. So, uh, in other words, the emphasis on the rule of law, which uh, combined with these kind of racist ideologies, um, which uh, enabled us to oppress. Oh yeah, I've also forgot to mention the whole fact that when we went and colonized other peoples, we didn't see them as equal to us, obviously, because we were colonizing them. So um, we didn't feel that they actually merited the rights that uh, we enjoyed. Um, Hussein uh, quotes an early 19th century judge who is presiding on a case of habeas corpus in India, and he complains when he says, quote, there is always wanting that similarity of circumstance which pervades all English cases arising from, arising from race, history, religion and constitution, and which form the unnoticed but not the less well-recognised substratum of every English decision. So uh, we would grant human rights to, well, the human rights that people enjoyed in, in 19th century um, Britain to our colonised subjects in India, if only they could be as what developed as um i don't even want to say the words you, you get what i'm saying i'm assuming you get what i'm saying if only they could be as um superior as we were but unfortunately they were not this is where the state of emergency that uh as it is understood in britain develops it's through the racist subjugation of colonized subjects and then it starts coming home. And so whenever people talk about states of emergency in Britain, I always feel a kind of strange um, double sense on the one hand of um, dread, because I, whenever people declare states of emergency, I'm always aware that this is going to lead to uh, the increase of some form of authority and control and the ceding of civil liberties on the part of some people. Um, but also a kind of grim amusement at the the fact that the things that we used to use to suppress other people are now being used to suppress us. Anyway, that kind of brings to a close this discussion of the history of states of emergency. Um, as I said, it's not a, not a cheerful history. And I suppose the use, I, I hope that the use of me um, delivering this now is that in the coming weeks and months, our liberties are going to be eroded. Perhaps we may even be under curfew. Perhaps, I mean, the, the military is being mobilised. Um, they're apparently potentially going to call in the reserves for a lockdown in London and maybe elsewhere throughout the country. And in, in a lot of respects, the arguments for this are strong. And there is growing consensus on the part of the British populace, it seems, that measures that have been brought in to help uh, prevent the spread of COVID-19 have not worked have been have been inadequate and so therefore uh, more extreme measures are going to need to be implemented and that's all very well and good but while that's happening there is a danger that we will allow too much of our liberty to be ceded and that we will allow too much power to be put into the hands of people who i don't think it's uncontroversial to say have not necessarily proven themselves very competent or trustworthy at wielding it so whilst we are in this state of emergency um 
in which it is always very difficult to think because as i said in an emergency there is no time you you, you deprioritize everything that's not directly connected to helping to resolve the emergency we still need to take time we still need to think we still need to try to hold those in power to account in whatever way shape or form that we can in order to try to prevent the co-opting of this state of emergency to suit the needs of some at the cost of the many um thank you for listening there will be uh, i think some further episodes on the the covid-19 outbreak um more to do with the ways in which it is being presented in the press i will prepare these um as we go along and i've no idea when they will come out but uh, in the interim stay safe stay sane look after each other and i hope you are as well as humanly possible uh, the closing song or the the song is is uh, recorded by Polly Edwards it's called one more broke poet um yeah cheers bye so fly when you're back and go dream of the seas find out you're not quite that easy to please be slave to the tracks be king for a day do you realize kings do have a price they can